Hello, welcome to Mo Chats. I am so excited for today's episode. I have the wonderful Stephanie Nastef joining us. Stephanie Nastef is a lifelong storyteller, an established commercial voice actor, and a proud union member. She has voiced hundreds of television, radio commercials, and narrations over the past 18 years. In her 20s, Stephanie co-founded Crooked Neck Productions, producing and performing theater in New York and Los Angeles throughout the arts. Welcome to Mo Chats, the podcast, a podcast about women stepping out of their comfort zone to live life on their terms. What if you truly believe you have the ability to create the life you want? What if you decide to live life out of the box? And what if you decide to ignore the naysayers and take bold steps to build your vision? Now, what would that vision look like? Every episode, we chat with women on the journey of stepping out of their comfort zone and living life on their terms. Now I'm your host, Mo Jones. Her personal writing has been performed at Listen to Your Mother in North Jersey in 2014 and 2017. She is currently working on Hotel Del Marva, a multimedia memoir podcast about her childhood. Growing up at the Del Marva Hotel in Ocean City, Maryland, a business her family owned and operated from 1978 to 1988. Stephanie now lives in Maplewood, New Jersey with her husband and two beautiful children and a small zoo, which I'd love to hear about. And Stephanie, welcome. Thank you, Mo. I'm so excited to be here with you. Thank you for joining me. And this beautiful bio tells a real gamut of who you are and it has stepping out of your comfort zone written all over it. <laughs> so Indeed. It is- <laughs> It is perfect for our discussion today. So I look forward to all the wonderful wisdom you'll be sharing with our listeners. So tell us a little bit about what voice acting is and what's involved with it. So voice acting, it's a funny job that not many people consider. I didn't even realize how big the industry was until I started working myself. All through college, my director would say, oh, you should be doing voiceover. And I'd be like, I don't even know what that is. Cartoons? And he would, he'd say, no, there's all sorts of things you can do. And I, I got to New York and every agent that I got in front of was saying to me, why aren't you doing voiceover? And I just had no idea until I started listening to television commercials. And every time you see a commercial, you hear a voice. That's somebody's job. Every time, some, every time the, the pause breaks in between shows, you hear an announcer. That's somebody's job. All of these invisible people that you hear from every day, they're part of the fabric of our lives. You never see them. Absolutely. That's my job. <laughs> yeah. So it is commercials. It is radio. And it, of course, it is cartoons. And now, but that work is more in L.A., and a lot of times done by celebrities. And of course, there's this whole new market of audiobooks. It's not so new. I know people used to listen to books on tape, but I feel like with the onset of Audible, there's a whole new pocket of work for actors and, and voice actors performing in a, a different kind of way. 
different kind of mediums. How did you get started into voice acting? When I moved to New York City when I was 22, I was coming to be the next Meryl Streep. I was interested in the theater and film and television and really film and theater. At that point, I thought I was going straight to the top. So I went to acting school and I started this theater company with two friends from acting school and did a lot of plays and learned a ton. And as I said, every agent that I ever got in front of was like, why aren't you doing voiceovers? And I'd be like, I don't know, send me out. So I get a call from an agency, which I won't name, saying, we'd love for you to come in to talk to you about voiceover. I come in, she says, I think you need some more experience. I wanna set you up with a coach. And I go to this coach and at the beginning, it's fantastic. She teaches me a lot of little tricks that really helped me pull apart the and she says, honey, you're going to be great. Just three sessions and we'll make you a demo. So I do three sessions. And then she's, honey, <laughs> just a thousand dollars and a book on tape workshop and we're going to get you a demo. And in the middle of this, I'd started coaching with her at four o'clock on Tuesday afternoons. Tuesday is a great day for me. I'm, I've still got my energy. She moved me to four o'clock on a Friday afternoon for my session, about six weeks wow. in. At the time, I was nannying, I was waitressing, I was catering, I was in acting school. I was spinning all the plates at once. And so by four o'clock on a Friday, I was a little bit low energy. And she says to me, honey, I think you're depressed. I'm on Prozac and my daughter's on Zoloft and I think you need to get yourself a prescription because <laughs> because oh you just gosh. don't seem like you're okay. And I was like, I am out of here. I'm wow. not giving this woman any more of my money. No more money for this lady. Oh my God. And so I graduated from acting school um, in May of 2001. And this was throughout the summer of 2001 before 9-11 happened. So I was producing theater with my company and we were getting funding. And when 9-11 happened, everything stopped. We were devastated. The arts world, all the money got sucked out. We lost our funding because the umbrella organization that, that allowed us 501c3 status closed their doors and went to San Francisco. We were oh, in litigation no. for 10 years after. Like they, we, we raised $5,000 to put on East Village Theater and they took it all. And as a 23 or 20, I guess I was 24 at the time, as a 24 year old, $5,000 that That's... people gave us to make theater. Now, how did that impact you? Oh, it was devastating. I was just starting to get seen by agents and I was just starting to get my footing. I had been waiting tables. I'd worked as a nanny back and forth to LA. And right before 9-11, I had decided I can't wait tables anymore. I'm going to go and get a yoga teaching certificate. I'm going to work at a yoga studio. I don't care if I make zero dollars. I just want to do something that speaks to my heart and work on my craft. And I just felt like I need to invest the time or else I was never going to have the career that I want. If I was always waiting tables and being out till two o'clock in the morning after hours and all of that stuff. So I got a job at a yoga studio and they made me the manager of the downtown location and, my, and offered me a teacher's training as part of my benefits, which was another $5,000 gift. I could <laughs> never have paid for that. We were in so much debt. We could wow. not afford to live in New York City. It was the $5,000 coming back to you. Totally. Yes. Thank you for framing it that way. Absolutely. So I started my yoga teacher's training September 10th, 2001. <laughs> then the world ended and I was starting 
to manage the downtown location on 19th Street and 5th Avenue on the Thursday after 9-11. That was my start date because I had been managing the midtown location where I was when the towers came down. So I come, I get off the subway on that Thursday and a tank rolls down 5th Avenue. Mm. And we were the place where people came to put themselves back together and breathe at the yoga studio. So I worked there and so it was all yoga all the time for that year. It was about 18 months. And then ironically enough, one of my fellow teachers was offering free yoga to one of her friends who had lost her brother in the towers. And this friend happened to be a voiceover agent and innovative artists. Wow. And she's been my agent since I think July, 2002. And I've been with them ever since. Somebody came in to the studio casting a, a Taco Bell commercial and they were doing on camera and they wanted a yoga mat and they were looking for people that could stand on their head for some Taco Bell commercial. And I was like, <laughs> not for nothing. I'm an actress and I can stand on my head. And they were like, oh, come in. And my friend Jody said, oh, Sue King at Innovative will send you out for all the yoga stuff on camera. You can't call an agency and get a meeting. Like you just don't do that. Call Sue King. I'm going to tell her you're going to call. I got in the next day. They brought me in for on camera the next day. And they said, oh, blah, blah, blah. You're pretty, you're not model pretty. But you could probably do some on camera, but why aren't you doing voiceover? And, and they said, do you have a demo? And I said, I've got this rehearsal tape. I can give it to you. And I may have had it or I may have dropped it off afterward. But a week later, I get a call. Hi, this is Deborah Sherry from Innovative Artists. That is so fascinating. So it was a very strange sequence of events. As I hear you tell, your story was guided in a Absolutely. way. Absolutely. I've always felt very taken care of. Definitely guided. And it seems like you connected at the right time and at the right moment. Voice acting was where you were supposed to land. You probably didn't know it yet. I didn't know it yet. I really thought I was going to be a movie star. But when I really look at myself, I got married at 20, 23? Did you 23 really? Or 24. Yeah, Eric and I have been together. It'll be our 20th anniversary in August. Getting married at 23 years old does not a screen actress may. <laughs> you know, if I wanted to do that, really, I would have moved to LA right away. I, I just wouldn't have prioritized my relationship over my career. And it was always as important to me. So I think voiceover, I was so suited to it and allowed me, it allowed us to get out of debt, which was amazing. It allowed us to have a really nice life and to have children in New York City. I, I literally came to New York City with $1,600 in my pocket. Cash. The ultimate New York City dream. And I remember Eric was at Pratt doing his master's degree. And I got on a bus in Brooklyn, not knowing where the heck I was in Bed-Stuy. And this lady put her hand on my shoulder and she said, you need to get yourself out of here right now. And I swear she was an angel. I had every bit of money that I had was in my suitcase on this bus, wow. on this city bus with me. <laughs> Oh my goodness. <laughs> totally in the unknown, probably like a yes. fish out of water. And I'm like, oh, no, I'll find him somehow. Willoughby Avenue, wherever that is. Oh my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> again, I was guided. There have been angels on my journey. Definitely. I'm just so fascinated by your story and talking about stepping out of your comfort zone. You definitely stepped out of your comfort zone. You moved to a whole new city. You get married at a young age. 
where your career is in an industry where that doesn't always apply, you start working in a yoga studio at a time when one of the most horrible acts have happened in our country. And you have had to somehow mold yourself to continue to build your craft. And it all added up. And it all added up. It all added up. And it was really only three years. So it was meant to be. It It was was definitely meant to be. And it was on our own terms. Exactly. You made it on your own terms. I just want to touch upon the fact where you said you valued your relationship and getting married at a young age. I think that is so refreshing to hear, particularly at such a young age. And the one thing I can attest to as we do know each other, I'll say that we do know each other. And I see the love you have for your family. And that is totally who you are. Thank you for saying that. It is. I think that there was part of me that wanted to override that because I had been a co-parent with my mom since I was 12 to my younger siblings. Right. So I felt like I'd had children already. You already had that experience. Yes. And I was always the newborn nanny. Give me the baby. I'll take care of <laughs> the babies. <laughs> oh, wow. Give me all the babies. So we'd been together for five years before and both of our mothers are women of faith and neither of them were going to be supportive of us living in sin. So we had to have the conversation with ourselves. We were like, okay, so we're either going to get married or we're going to break up. That was where we were. And we decided, we told our parents, we said, we're going to move in together and then we're going to get engaged because also splitting rents and New York City and didn't make any sense. We were able to have a one bedroom apartment because there were two of us. I have never had a roommate. Right. Eric's been my roommate for That's fantastic. forever. Because <laughs> many of us, myself included, have done that New York City living with roommates. Yeah. <laughs> All my girlfriends from college were like, oh, sex in the city, is that like your life? And I'm like, no. <laughs> Far from I, it. <laughs> I, I'm married, <laughs> broke, and have no cute shoes. <laughs> Exactly. No cute shoes. Zero cute shoes. No red bottom soled shoes hanging in your closet. Because you can't wait tables in those things and you cannot walk to the train. No matter how much they show that on Sex in the City, no. you're not doing that in the, in the no. cobblestone streets of the city. You are not. Oh my goodness. Okay. So did you have any fears any doubts as you were entering this trajectory of making your way in the voice acting world? Since it wasn't my goal, I didn't. I wasn't afraid of it at all because it wasn't what I wanted. It was what happened to me. Now, if you ask me about auditioning for on camera, we can talk about all sorts of fears and hangups or like cystic acne on my chin or if I'm not as naturally thin as the 90s. Let's just talk about that I started in the 90s when Callista Flockhart was. That's I am right. not I am not a waif. Never have been, never will be. I remember Callista Flockhart and how she was the model image during that time. Mm-hmm. And the so, smaller the better. And the smaller the better. So that's my next part I want to get into was the auditioning. I can only imagine what that must be like to have to walk into a room or a studio to be judged on your appearance and having to think about what mold you're going to fit into. Yeah. So share that with us. So crippling that I stopped doing it. You did. I stopped because my voiceover career was so robust. I completely put it away. I produced my own theater that I acted in. I made my own opportunities and I got to a point, I was heavily pursuing legit is what they call film TV theater. 
That's the legit side of the business. So I was heavily still pursuing legit up until my mother was very sick. My mom had breast cancer four different times over 18 years. So when Jesser was two, my mother started becoming very sick and it was clear that she was going to die. Mm. And I was just starting to get a foothold. I was auditioning for Law and & Order and some more prestigious regional theaters. And what was Tina Fey's show with Alec Baldwin? That was the last big one that I went on. I forget the name of that. But I was just starting to get my foot in the door with some real work that I wanted to do. And when my mom was dying, the grief was so intense that I just couldn't expose myself to that. And then I lost a pregnancy around the same time. And I knew that I wanted to have another baby. And so my resume stopped at a certain point. And I knew that if I had the family that I wanted, I wouldn't get back in the shape that I needed to be until around 34. And then at 34, with a huge gap and nothing to show for it, you're dead in the water in the industry. If you, yeah. if, if I hadn't done those law and orders, if I hadn't done, like the soaps were already dead. Like when I was in my 20s, I started auditioning for soaps. I booked a couple of on-camera commercials. I booked a lot of off-Broadway stuff before I had agents. I was doing a lot of theater, but I never got good enough at auditioning. Really? I was always working with voiceover too. And they would only send me out for big stuff if I was around. And I was so busy oh. in my late 20s, all the way through my 30s. And it was giving me everything that I needed. So at that point, did you make that decision to stick with only voice acting? I did. You did. Mm -hmm, And was there one defining moment or was it just the add up of moments that led you to say, I'm just going to stick to voice acting? I think the moment was for me. My agency is not going to back me because I've taken these other two years off. So I've got to find a new agent. And that felt like something I was not up for. My agency is a very big agency that reps stars. The voiceover division is separate from the legit. It's all one big agency, but they rep people that have careers. They took a chance on me. They don't usually rep people with not as many credits, but since I brought in a good amount of money for them through the commercial side, they took me on and they'd seen my plays that I'd produced and they believed that I could have gone somewhere. With me pulling the plug and having another baby, and stepping off the train without any other credits to show, I would have had to go to a smaller boutique agency and really start again. And that for me would have meant like sending out headshots and doing monologues and like (laughs) going on tape. It just was so, it felt humiliating to me. In the same way that in my 20s, I was never going to be in a cattle call. I just felt like I didn't want to have to sell myself in that way. And I do think that's been to the detriment of my larger career. I am not great at talking about myself or in that kind of way, or I don't like to tell people specifically what I've done. I don't like to brag on myself. And it's a lot about that. Like you're asked to tell everybody every time you're in something, it just felt, do I really want to do this? And then I have friends that work in the TV industry regularly and still don't qualify for health insurance. Screen Actors Guild. So why would I bleed myself for a chance to not make any money that would give that would take away from my availability to do commercial work which has been so good to me for so long. So here's my comfort zone. I've rejected my heart soul dreams for money in my pocket. I've now built a comfort zone where I didn't have one before. And true confession, I'm mm-hmm. 
rubbing up against it every day. You are. Every day. Because really? now the way my business has reshuffled, there's not as much work as there used to be. I've always defined myself by my snappy work and being big earner and being valued in that mm. kind of way. And for me to extricate my human value away from my year-to-date value has been a really sticky wicket for me. And how is that showing up for you? It showed up a lot last year during my recovery. So I had breast cancer last year. It was a very small diagnosis, but I made a very big decision because of my mother's history and my extended family history. And I had a bilateral mastectomy uh, and reconstruction, which was rough. I had a lot easier than a lot of other people because I didn't have any other treatment. But emotionally, having been living in reaction to breast cancer since I was 14 years old, it really felt like my destiny in some way, in a not a good way. And I felt like I saw things that happened in my mother's life. When she turned 40, my parents were divorced. They sold their the family business, which was my wonderland. We moved very suddenly. She was in a marriage that was very painful for the rest of the family for many years. And then she died of breast cancer. It was like the breast cancer was right after the divorce. I, I found myself reliving my mother's trajectory and thinking, oh, this is the part in the story where I lose everything. My work has slowed down. I've got cancer now. The work's not coming back. I've made this lovely life that I... I'm so proud of what if it's all taken away because I'm not good enough anymore or I'm not this enough. So all the voices in your head are constantly on auto replay. Yes. All the time. Yes. All the time. And it's not a place I've been before because I was a kid who knew exactly what she wanted. Now I have no idea what I want. So I'm dealing with this sort of the quarter life crisis at 44. <laughs> it's almost having to reimagine and reshift life all over again. Yes. And what do I want to do? Heck if I know. <laughs> <laughs> and sometimes we have to just figure it out as we go along. And that's where I am right now, Mo. Talk about not ever knowing what a comfort zone is and bucking all of the usual things that people do. That's how I've lived my life. But now I don't know. I don't know how to do that anymore. I feel like I've almost used up my bravery in some ways. Mm, it's so interesting you say used up your bravery. I would frame it this way. It's time to explore bravery in a new way. I, I do see you as this brave, amazing woman. And I can mm. only imagine how having your life shift and being maybe a little unsettled right now as you're trying to figure out your next step and probably not having had that before. And it's causing you to look at that unsettledness. And I'm learning and continue to learn that sometimes the unsettling is where the biggest growth happens. Sure, sure. And we may not always know it or be open to receiving it, but that unsettling is what's going to probably guide you to that next chapter to where you're supposed to be. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And I'm hoping that being able to finish this podcast, which I'm which so is excited the second for, version of the book that I stopped writing. I, really? I, I wrote two thirds of a book and I put it away because it was just too painful in certain ways. And writing is so solitary. And although I really love writing an essay, writing books is a whole different thing. I'm learning that as well. Holy. I, I'm in the same boat. Oh my I gosh. started writing a book and I'm like, oh my goodness, this is so much more 
more because complicated than I imagined pieces, it to be. It's all up to you. I'm a collaborative yes. artist. I come from the theater. So this is you. This is your work. So I had put the book in a bag. It's literally in this tote bag with all of the things. Of course, it's backed up in four different places on my computer, but all of my manuscript is in this bag and I bring it around. And I was doing this program last summer when I felt like everything was falling apart called The Artist's Way. Do you know this program? No, I don't know it. I've always been a person that really rejects programs as someone who <laughs> left the church at 18 and sloughed off a lot of nonsense. So I thought if I approach this as an interesting experiment rather than somebody telling me what I have to do, let's see if I could learn something. I was like, I'm, I don't have to think it's great. I don't have to do everything she says. I can see what comes up. I know people have benefited from this before. So last August, I started on The Artist's Way. And I, this is how I tricked myself into doing it. Downloaded a copy of the audiobook, And I said to myself, if you like the first four chapters on the audiobook for free with your credit, then you can buy the workbook and you can see. But you don't have to buy the book unless this seems like something that you're into. That was a good approach. And she blew my mind. Wow. So I thought, okay, I'm going to do this program. It's a 12-week program. It actually took me about 20 weeks to do it, but I finished it. And I am a serial non-finisher. I can make up a new business idea or a new story 50 a week. Can I finish any of them? <laughs> <laughs> Zero. Zero finish unless I have a team. So I thought, how can I tell this story in a way that I can build a team? So I thought, oh, I could call everybody that worked for my family and my dad and my grandmother and my uncle, who was my mom and dad's business partner, and interview them. And then I could weave my narrative through it. So it's a collaborative piece and I could let them tell their side of the story. I don't have to do all the heavy lifting. That is brilliant. Thank you. That is fantastic. And the reason I say brilliant is because you are able to tap into what is it that I can contribute and how mm -hmm. can I bring other people into bringing the pieces that fill in the gaps for me and yep. then put together something that is memorable and connecting to you and your family and create art at the same time. Yes. And so here are my three adjectives right now. Beautiful, true, and finished. Oh, love that. I, it doesn't have to be great. I love that. It can be good. Beautiful, true, finished. Those are the only three things. It doesn't have to be the thing that makes my next career move. I'm taking every expectation off of this, and I just want to finish the darn thing. I love that. Beautiful, true, and finish. What great words of wisdom for our listeners. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I, am, I may have to keep that in my mind and autopilot for myself as I carry on with my whatever work. You, whatever works for you, pick it. Beautiful, <laughs> pick it and true, and finish. I love that. I love that. I think it would be good just to really talk about some of the real challenges that you faced on your journey to becoming a voice actor. I would imagine that rejection is a big part of the game. Although you said your voice acting is a little bit different in the sense that this was the path for you. But being in that booth, hearing your voice, and then the other piece is that it's also a business. Sure. So let me tell you, I'll tell you a little bit about this. It's funny because I never had any fear about voiceover as in my early days, all the way through the first 15 years of my career. And I wouldn't say that I'm afraid of it now, but it is feeling different to me now. And I'm still trying to figure that out. What was freeing for me about talking in front of a mic 
is that it doesn't feel personal. Whereas on-camera aud auditioning is so personal because it's your person. This is just my voice. And it's really, they're looking to match the music. They're looking to match the picture. They're sometimes choosing between a man and a woman. They're sometimes choosing ages. Like when it comes down to it, it's not about Stephanie Nastef and what Stephanie Nastef can bring to this role and if she can nail it. It's about if this sounds right. So for me, it was really able, I was able to just walk out the door. But this is how I've handled my auditioning. I don't keep track of what I audition for. I go, I do it. No. And I walk out the door. I don't think about it again. The only time I think about it again is if they call me with the job. And then I think about it. But on camera wise, I would walk out the door and think about it for a week. And so, not about the job, about was I okay? Did I do the right thing? Was that like, was it weird? Was it great? Oh, I thought I nailed it. Where's my callback? Oh, I thought I sucked. Oh, I got a callback. Like I never think of any of that with voiceover. And I really think that's why I've had the success that I've had because I wouldn't say on my voiceover path that I've had many obstacles except the internet sort of changing the whole way people consume media. And that's not because of me. That's the way our culture is moving toward a digital age. And the way they used to, the way people watch television has totally changed. So Completely. Yeah, ad agencies are making different choices with their dollars and non-union work is on the rise and I'm a union gal. Those are my challenges now that I never had before because the work situation was different. But I will say that the stumbling blocks that I had in the career that I wanted and did not achieve or fulfill were all about confronting my feelings of being less than. Which is something so many women face and struggle with, that notion, am I enough? And what's most challenging is that particular field is all about that. That's right. That's right. So when you're on camera, there's so many things at play. Do you look like their ex-girlfriend? Do you look like too old? Do you look, who knows? So many. It's rarely about talent. Like it's almost never about talent because when you're operating at that sort of frequency, you've already got the training. You've already got the chops. It's just about plugging in the characters, but it does. It's so personal. And the, and the further you get up when it is more about character, when you're auditioning for film and television, I've watched my friends go through this. The validation that you feel when you've gotten the job is huge. And the negation when you don't get the job is bigger. It's bigger. Because, because you don't get the job most of the time. The job is auditioning. And if you're not good at that job, you don't ever get to do the one that actually pays you. So it's forcing all those insecurities that we already have. It's magnified 10 times, oh, yeah. you would say. Oh, yeah. Because you can't extricate yourself from yourself as an actor. Like, th that's your instrument. It's the whole self. It's the so whole self. So you have self. to be free in a way that you give yourself permission to embody whatever is asked of you in really weird circumstances. Auditioning is really weird because never in a play or in a movie or on television or on a set, are you going to have four people looking at you with a table and a blue background and then they'll tell you to move your hand a certain way with nothing or they'll give you a fake plate to eat something with or like it's just you're all by yourself. No one acts in a mm. vacuum. And auditioning 
is acting in a vacuum. It's a whole different skill than being able to relate to another artist on stage or in a scene. So it's a lot of like self generation. And like I said before, I am a collaborative artist and I'm not great at putting myself out there. You give me a scene, you watch me in a show, I will morph but I do not like to be judged. And that's what auditioning is all about, being judged. But you found your freedom in using your voice. That's true. So in a way, while dealing with the physical appearance was really an internal awareness all the time, using your voice allowed you the freedom to really be yourself. Absolutely. Unencumbered. Yeah. In a way, it's beautiful to see that you were able to, which the voice, I think, I'm a speech pathologist, so I'm going to be a little bit biased. Yes, I like that. Keep going. I think the (laughs) voice is one of the most beautiful instruments that we have. And we can use our voices in so many ways. And there's beauty in one, finding your voice. Absolutely. And then two, being able to use that voice to generate beauty and goodness to others. And it is a skill. It's not People think it's so easy, but it's the first muscle that gets constricted when you're nervous. As yes, yes, yes. As you know, <laughs> if someone's nervous, the throat constricts oh, first, yeah. right off the bat. Right there. So if you're working with any sort of constriction in your vocal folds or any sort of constriction in your mind, it's going to come out. It's in squeeze your sound or push absolutely. or or you and, can tell when someone's telling the truth. Absolutely, because fear and truth all radiate from here. Absolutely. There's so much that power there. Chakra. So or fifth. Fifth. The fifth. Okay. So Steph, what are you most proud of in your professional career? What am I most proud of in my professional career? You know what I love about my work? Tell me. I'm super proud. When they say, can you shave a half second off that? And I say, no problem. And I do it without thinking about it. And I love to blow them away. Say the time is 30 seconds and the copy really comes in around 34 if you're reading it slowly. Okay. I love to get it at 28 and a half and it still feels relaxed. I feel so proud of myself. That's, it's so nerdy. It's so nerdy. But I love to be really good at my craft. Um, Yeah. It's all about timing. I love to hear. I love to translate their words into the meaning that they wanted. And done. Got it. There's nothing that makes me more proud than making my clients happy and like totally nailing it. And I think that's one thing I love about commercial work is that it's a short story. Finish it. And then it's done. It's it's so satisfying. Talking about finish, right? (laughs) That's right. Exactly. I love to get it right. So that for me is it's pride in in what I can bring. It's not really proud of what I've done per se. I've done some really cool stuff, but what I am proud of is the way I do it. The way you do it. And how important is that? It's the for, for me it's the most important. Yeah, also absolutely. like with the pullback in the volume of my work. I just miss collaborating with people. That's what juices me up as a person and as a performer. Collaborating is the most important thing to me. 
So the absence of collaboration and the absence of that sort of snappy, oh, let's do it this way. Oh, what about this? Oh, how about this? I haven't been able to do that as much as I like to. And I think even if the money was lower and I was working more, I'd still feel a value offering my gifts. I love to play. I love to work. I love working. Which is good. I think that's so important that you find value in doing the work because you have to want to do it. You have to want to do the work Mm. so that it can resonate from within and then you can see what it forms into. You're never done. Like you you can't just say, oh, I've done that and now I'm done. You you have, you have to keep going and it's always something new. You always reinvent yourself. You don't have a, you don't have a, what's it called? I don't even know what it's called, but they pay you all the time because you go to work and you come home. A salary. Residuals. Oh, (laughs) salary. (laughs) Salary. I know about residuals. (laughs) That you know I don't know about about a salary. (laughs) (laughs) Which is what I love because you, that allows you to live life on your own terms and not follow that traditional trajectory of a salary. Although sometimes I think, oh, should I have done that? Because you know what you'll make in a year. I never know if what I've been working on for five years is going to go away next week because they decided to move agencies. And that's how most of the times you lose a campaign. It's not because they don't like you anymore. I've never lost a job because I didn't do a good job. Every job that I've lost has been that they've changed writing teams. uh, They've moved agencies. So tell us a little bit about the business side of voice acting. So you have a team of agents and they call you usually at six p- by 6 p.m. the day before an audition. When there's not a pandemic, you go to a casting office with between 20 and 100 other people. You are given a piece of copy. You read the copy over a couple of times to yourself. You go in the booth, you perform it, or you read it, and you go home. And, and hopefully a couple more times. And then they call you, the agents call you and say, you're on hold for this. And then usually that means a couple people are also on hold and then it could go away. You could book it. It used to mean if you were on hold that you got a job. Sometimes it's a demo is a set rate. You go in and there, a demo is like a mock-up commercial. It used to be an animatic in the old days where they, it was almost like just drawings. And now they're very, they can do all of this 3D animation. It's much more similar to what you actually see. For the demo, um, you're- for a demo. And, for a demo. And oft, a lot of my work has come off of demos. So you do a demo and, the, and then the client gets used to hearing your voice with the product and then they just upgrade you and then they keep you when they do their next product. So you don't have to audition again. Um, that makes sometimes sense. that you just audition for the demo and then they do another casting call and then they hire somebody else. So I've been very fortunate that I've had a lot of long-term clients. I worked for Danon for seven years. I did all of the light and fit branding for since it when it started so when they hear your voice so when people hear some of those commercials that's your voice over that's me right eat light and fit be light and fit that Ah! was like (laughs) that was my 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 first big job i got my union card with a dove exfoliating moisturizer bar like it was the whole exfoliating moisture line that came out for dove that was when i got my union card that was your first union job that was my first union job yeah or no, it was my third union job. Because what happens is you can work as a non-union actor a certain amount of times before you're a, they call you a must join. I have heard so that's that. That's how you get into the union. And then you have to pay your dues. So my, I think my very, the first job, 
and I booked the first job I ever auditioned for. That's the truth. Wow. It was a PSA to quit for pregnant women to quit smoking. And how rare is that? I have no idea. Probably okay. very rare. Okay. Wow. Probably pretty rare. That's pretty amazing. And did that, as you forayed more into it, did you find yourself having to audition more? You talked a little bit about oh, yeah. never knowing how much you're going to make in a year. So did you feel that you had to continuously keep auditioning oh, in I never order say to support no. yourself? I never say no. I've said no to a job once. There are certain products that I have on my list that I won't do. I, I won't voice a, a couple of a, a couple of different products or organizations, let's say. So you have um, you, you've made that commitment. There are certain things that I don't promote. Right when right wing politics, anti choice. Those are my those are my big sticking points. But that's important to note because in spite of it all, you are still staying true to yourself and true to who you are while and keeping your integrity at the same time. Yeah. yeah. So where were we? I forgot what we were talking about. We were talking about the continuous auditions. Oh, yeah. So it used to be when I first started, it was so busy. It was like you'd have five auditions a day and they'd be at all different times over the city, like everywhere. So I'm like hoofing it up and downtown everywhere. And you'd have lunch with your friends. It was so much fun. It was oh, so much fun. Sounds it was like so the, many good memories. It was the best. And then you were able to start auditioning at the office. And then you were able to start auditioning. Usually, I guess there were always auditions at the office too. But then when people got at home microphones, you could start auditioning from home. And then the casting directors started getting squeezed out of the business more and more. They because did. They, sent, they sure did. Absolutely. They were the first ones to get squeezed. So our auditions would go through our agents and then they'd go directly to the producers. So casting directors have gotten squeezed and then you just don't go as much because you can do it at home. So why would they have a casting session in a studio where they have to pay rent at the studio and they have to do X, Y, and Z. So it, the running around was less. And when I was a young mom, that was great because I was able to, I was, I, we lived in the city on 18th and 1st and my agency was on 19th and Park. So I, I was always like able to run home and nurse my babies. So it allowed you a lot of flexibility it did. that you needed I at did. that time in your <clears throat> life. That's right. And we had a, a wonderful nanny who would meet me in the park sometimes and I would uh, nurse the baby in the sweet. park and she'd take her take him home and <laughs> talk about collaboration right <laughs> absolutely absolutely it was really great and then and over the years it's just gotten much more isolated and whereas I used to see my girlfriends I'm actually gonna we have a zoom this afternoon I used to see my girlfriends every day my other voiceover colleagues I see them once every six months now. It Not used anymore. To be, yeah. How has it so, become isolating? Because we work from our homes a lot and there's less work. So that you don't see your friends when you go to audition unless there is an in-person audition, which is rare. And if you do, everyone's like, oh, I haven't seen you in so long. The business is in the toilet. It's no, it's, it's just sad. Like, it doesn't have that same energy that it used to, no, it sounds like. it doesn't. And there have been a lot of women, and ageism, you wouldn't think so. But in the voiceover uh, 
category, ageism still exists. Your voice doesn't really age, but it doesn't. They won't put they won't put you on stuff like I've I my most of my career was bright and per, bright perky, but grounded. Now I'm almost given almost all gravitas and lots of pharmaceutical stuff, which I'm good at that too, but it's not where my bread and butter has been, but I don't get that stuff anymore because I'm not the right age, even though my, I can still do that. So that's interesting that even in the voice over world where there isn't that physical appearance, but now you're being judged by your voice, mm-hmm. which your voice can still maintain that freshness. Mm-hmm for that work that you're doing. Mm-hmm. But yet you're finding yourself being faced with the fact that I'm sorry, but your voice is a little bit older sounding yeah. than we'd like it to be. Yeah. That is or so- we, kn- we know you've got teenagers, like you're in a different category now. But I will say, as I'm saying it out loud, there definitely is a different ethos to these younger, to the millennials. They have a different cadence. They have a different vibe. I don't do that. Which, as a speech-language pathologist, I have analyzed and listened to over and over again, and I am amazed by how that use of that certain voice projection has entered our society. Yes, and if I do that voice, it sounds like I'm making fun. It's not you. It's not me. It's not you. So I think that's part of what I'm rubbing, rubbing up against too, is this, this sort of new edge that I'm not willing to, or it's just, it's inauthentic. I am a person who is not open to being inauthentic. I'm not going to perform in a way that's not true to my values and who I am. And that's a real way of honoring yourself and honoring your craft. That's important to know. And we have to- But it might not be great for my my bottom line right now. So- You forge ahead. That's right. Exactly. We learn new things. We learn new things. (laughs) So just a few more questions, Steph, and then our chat, we'll wrap up our chat. But looking back, did you ever imagine that that would have been the life that you would have led and that you would have designed? No, never. No, I really, <laughs> I thought I would have an Oscar by now when I was 22. I was always planning my acceptance speech. Wow. I was so sure that I was going to be like Laura Linney or Kate Winslet, or I really wanted to be a serious I can actress. See that. I really wanted to tell dark stories human stories. I love comedy too, but I really was drawn. I'm really drawn to drama, Glenn Close, Mm. um, period stuff. I was really, I really thought that's where I would have been. I changed high schools when I was 16 to go to a public high school from a private high school because the theater department wasn't strong enough. I knew that if I wanted to be an actor, I had to have college training. I didn't go to conservatory but I really needed to be doing my craft then. And every decision that I made from 16 on was in service of getting to New York City to become an actress. That was your goal. It was my goal. And I, I, I found a, an old diary of mine from 
second grade, I think. Second and it grade. says, what do you want to do for your work? And I, to be an actress. It, that was, it wasn't, that it wasn't was even it. or something else. It was, I wanted to be an actor. So you had that already in you from the time you were little. Yes. But somehow the universe delivered it to you in a different way. In a different package. Absolutely. In a different package. And I do think in so many ways, it really has been more suited to the whole of who I am. I don't have regrets. I don't wish that I had made different choices. I do wish I didn't have this audition anxiety. Any other advice that you'd like to give our listeners about stepping out of the comfort zone tackling or doing that thing that calls you or even if they'd like to enter the voice acting field i would say there's a voice that lives deep inside of me and i think that it lives deep inside of everyone the soul voice and i think if you can quiet all of the other stuff that doesn't serve that soul voice you can live without worrying about comfort zones. I could not have said that better myself. That is truly beautiful. Thank you for sharing that with Thank our you. listeners. So I always end Mo Chats with one question that I love to ask okay. my guests and leave my listeners with a little bit of takeaway. What would you tell your 25-year-old self? Oh, my 25-year-old self. I would say, keep going. You're almost there. Things aren't going to look like you thought that they would, but you are on the right track. Just keep doing what you're doing. And there you have it, friends. Keep going. Keep doing what you're doing. It will all fall into place. Thank you so much, Steph. <laughs> Thanks, Thank you Mo. so much, everyone, for joining us today on Mo Chats. And remember, keep living life while constantly straightening out your crown. Thank you for joining us on another episode of Mo Chats. Remember, you can check us out at www.molifespeaks.com. You can also check us out on Instagram at molifespeaks.